All right, good to see you, good to see you. So we are continuing on in our uh, year of Sunday school. Uh, have I got a story for you today? Can anybody guess who we're talking about? Yep, Joshua. Yep, so we're talking about Joshua today. Let's take it back, uh, rewind a little bit here to the Old Testament. And uh, Joshua was in the process of Abraham, who had been leading the Israelites uh, as they came out of Egypt and had been wandering through the, uh, wandering through the, or Moses, I'm sorry, wandering through the, uh, the wilderness and whatnot. He had gone, and uh, Joshua had the army now. And uh, they were coming up on a city uh, in a string of cities that they had come across that they would fight against and they would do well against. And uh, so he called the guy who was leading his army and he said, hey, here's what I want you to do. He said, all right, you tell me what you want me to do. He says, well, okay, here's what I want. He says, well, tell me what you want, what you, there you go. You're all in it. Uh, (laughs) We are ridiculous. Uh, I apologize to everyone watching at home. Um, Anyway, so he's like, what I want you to do is I want you to go and I want you to scout out this city. Like, what what are we facing? You know, what what do we need to do to make sure we have victory? He says, no problem. So he takes a couple guys, they go, bam, they're out of the picture, scouting it out. Joshua has a meal. I don't know what he does. Then he comes back. Hey, I'm back. We've scouted. This is going to be nothing. Especially in light of all the other things we've done so far up to this point, nothing. In fact, we don't even need the whole army. If you just send, you know, a couple thousand, which I don't know how big the army was at that point, but you just, just send a few thousand. We don't need all of everybody. Give some guys a day off, you know, give them a little rest, and uh, we'll take care of this. So Joshua says, that's fine, sounds good. Go ahead, take care of it. So he leaves, gathers the army, heads out. And the city that they're fighting, it's, it's a, a little city, Old Testament city. It's called Ai, spelled A-I. Uh, you could probably look up other pronunciations of that. It may be a little different. That's what we're calling it today. So they go to Ai, and the army engages in battle. A little while later, head of army comes back. Hey, Joshua, I got some bad news. They destroyed us. I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that escaped with my life. They absolutely obliterated the army. We completely underestimated what we needed to do. So, of course, Joshua then, he's, um, he's in dire, dire straits after that. He falls on his face. He begins to pray. And he, he says a prayer to God that essentially is, God, what, what, what's going on? Why did you allow this to happen? God, why did you even deliver us from Egypt and bring us across the wilderness if, God, you were going to allow this to happen? And then he kind of wanted to shame God a little bit, I think. He said, God, 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 God. Our claim to fame is that we tell other people that we worship the one true God. And now with this defeat, with this defeat, what are we going to say? What are people going to think of you now, God, that we have had this defeat? And God says something pretty interesting to him. Um, and there's going to be a thread throughout this sermon that I'm pretty sure um, most pastors are never going to speak from the pulpit. I'll say it. I don't care. What are you going to do? Leave? Uh, God essentially says to him, what are you praying for? Why are you praying? Now's not the time for you to be praying. You're praying about this? You wonder why? It's because you guys have been irresponsible. You are praying about this. Stop praying about it, Joshua. 
get up off of your knees, and there are things that you have to do. So Joshua says, all right. And he gets up off his knees, and he does the things that they need to do. And they take another run at the city of Ai, and they obliterate it. Now, this is a story, and there's a couple more details we'll throw in as we look at the uh, scriptural uh, account of it. This is a story that you may or not, you may not be very familiar with um, because it's not one of the big famous ones. And, and, and it's more of a, you know, the first couple times that I was reading through and I, you know, when I was younger and I came across this story, this is more of a, why is this in here kind of story, right? But here's what we're going to discover today. So in case you get bored or, or uh, need to leave here, let, let's just cut to, I'm going to cut to the end here real quick. Um, this story addresses three groups of people. The first group of people are those who uh, are very religious and have a tendency to mask and hide their irresponsibility with prayer. We're, we're going to get into that a little bit. But we've all done it. We've been irresponsible. Outcome is bad. We pray, right? Right, we're, we're irresponsible in some way. <laughs> Things aren't going the way we want it to go. And then we pray, right? And then, and then sometimes maybe for some of us, somebody's heard us praying or we've talked about praying about it to them. You know, and uh, they, they, they point out our res- irresponsibility in the way that we've behaved. <laughs> and our response is, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm aware of that. I'm praying on it. I'm praying on it, right? Some of you, some of you may know some Christians right? Who are the most irresponsible people that you've ever met? Anybody? 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 It's the person next to you? Anybody? (laughs) No, no hands on that one. I'm shocked. (laughs) It's only because Kate's in the back. (laughs) She would have raised her hand. Um, (laughs) But they sure seem holy praying all the time, don't they? They, they, they say those right things. They spend a lot of time in praying. Uh, there's another group of people that this story addresses, and that's those who um, have misguided compassion. Right? You're, you're a compassionate person, but you, you apply it incorrectly into the, into the wrong ways. When you see somebody acting irresponsible, instead of holding them accountable, the reaction is, oh, you know, oh, bless their heart. And you create in your mind reasons maybe why it's okay for them to be responsible, irresponsible. Like, oh, well, we don't know the whole story that, you know, something's going on. So I'm just going to, I'm not going to address that, right? You know, maybe you had a rough start, not as smart as the other thing, come from a good home. You know, something's going on. And, and in doing that, even though that's so well-intentioned, it actually facilitates and promotes their irresponsibility. Right, And you and others who are connected to them, and this is why this part's dangerous, you who are connected to them will feel the consequences of their irresponsibility. You will end up paying the price for the irresponsibility that you inadvertently cultivated. And then there's another group that... that this story kind of addresses. And that, that's the group who, who don't like the principle of sowing and reaping, right? Don't like the principle. And the problem that they would have, if you were to ask, well, what's wrong? What problem do you have with the principle of sowing and reaping? It seems pretty straight ahead. You sow good things, you get good things. 
So bad things, you reap bad things, seems pretty straightforward. But the problem they would say is, I feel that I have sown all of the right seeds. And I feel that I am reaping my partners, my spouses, my mothers, my fathers, my bosses, my kids, irresponsibility. I feel like I'm doing the right things, making the sacrifices, uh, uh, making sure that I'm being, you know, what I think God wants me to be doing. And everybody around me who isn't, I'm taking on the consequences of their bad sowing. And that's not fair, right? That isn't fair. If you're doing it right, it should work for you. Now, this is a very powerful story. And to give a little bit of background that'll make a lot of this kind of come together a little more. Let me tell you a little bit about Joshua. So Moses, Moses had died, and Joshua's the one leading the Israelites into the promised land. And it's called the promised land. This is really difficult. See if you can stay with me, uh, because it's the land that God promised they would have. <laughs> so if you need to take a note, write that down. But that's why it's called the promised land. Now without context, uh, and through our, our, our modern filter, um, this story could, and maybe even should, make us wince a little bit when we read it, right? Because here's Joshua leading a few million people into a land in which other people are occupying and running them off and taking their land. I know you've been here a long time, people, but God promised this land to us, so you've got to go. You've got to go. Now, let me give some context to that, right? So about 650 years before this story that we looked at today, God promised Abraham that he would make a great nation of him. Abraham, you are going to be a great nation. He also told him that he would raise up a nation, not on the current real estate where Abraham was, but that nation would be raised up somewhere else. And the, the nation of Israel became a nation not in Israel. They became a nation in Egypt. When they were under the, the captivity of the Egyptians and they were slaves to the Egyptians, that's where they grew into a nation, right? Through, through Moses, they leave Egypt. Joshua's bringing them back home. And, and when they left before Egypt and ended up there, they were about, oh, 45 people strong. Now they're about 3 million. You know, we sounded like it was a lot. Oh, we only need to take a couple thousand men. Well, and then the concept of 3,000, that was a pretty small, or 3 million, that, that's a pretty small amount. Now, the other thing that's difficult is why would God make the people who are already living there, why would he make them leave so that the Israelites could have the land? Right? That, that, that's, that's one of the most important verses to understand this dynamic and to understand a few other things that happened in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 15, right? And I want to read this to you because I want you to know that there is an answer to the angst that you may feel or may rise up in you if you read the violence of the God of the Old Testament and you wonder if he can be the same God of the New Testament. If the one in the Old Testament that was like, I want you to attack, I want you to kill all of the people, I want you to kill all of the animals, if that could possibly be the same God of the New Testament that is, love your neighbors, we're all neighbors, there's no Jew, no Gentile, we're all together, love is how they are going to know. Because those seem like two very different gods. 
Well, there was something that was going on during this time, and I want to read, read this to you. Genesis chapter 15, verse 16. In the fourth generation, your descendants, the nation of Israel, will come back here. And here is important in that sentence. It will come back here for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. And there's a dynamic that is happening in the Old Testament that is not emotionally satisfying. Uh, it, 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 it's, um, it, but it's the explanation to what's happening. There were cultures in the Holy Land that were so extreme and so pagan and so wicked in the things that they did that God said, I am going to give them some time to right their wrongs. And if they don't, it would be better for them to be put out of existence. And we're talking about nations that would sacrifice their children to their pagan gods. There are two stories from the Old Testament where women are treated so horribly, I probably couldn't even bring myself to read the stories out loud to you. And God said, I've given them time and this culture that is not changing and is becoming more and more wicked as time goes by has got to be exterminated. So God brought the Israelites into the promised land and said, I don't want you to marry these people. I don't want you to take their cattle. I don't want you to take their gold or their silver. I don't want you to have anything to do with them. We are going to be doing something brand new. And the only way for that to happen is for you, Israel, to be here as an isolated nation with a completely different worldview, with a completely different sense uh, of justice, a completely different view of civilization, of socialization, of law and order. And, I, and I've given them a chance and they haven't changed. Now, that is... The whole concept is extremely difficult for our modern sensibilities to kind of wrap our mind around and be okay with that. But that's the backdrop to the story. So here's what happens. God's leading the Israelites into Canaan. The first city they come to is Jericho. How many of you are familiar with the city of Jericho? Right, right. How many of you have a song going through your head right now? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It comes to Jericho. They, they win that battle easily. The walls come tumbling down. I finished the song for you there. God made it easy because he wanted to show them that, to know that they have to depend on him. It is going to be God who is going to deliver them through all of these enemies. It's not going to be their army. So the next city they come across right after Jericho is the city of Ai which is a tiny little city in comparison to Jericho. Now, there was something that Joshua didn't know, is that God was clear in the previous battle against Jericho, don't take anything. When the city falls, don't take crops, don't take livestock, don't take gold, don't take silver, don't take anything for yourselves. In other words, Israel, we're gonna destroy this city. Do not enrich yourselves because of it. Well, this proved too difficult for this guy. Does he look kind of sneaky? Good. I tried to, I tried to, pay, I told D, get me the sneaky one. So this proved difficult for this guy. This guy's name is Aiken. Aiken. A A Aiken, during that battle, he found some gold and silver. And he looked at it and he's like, why, why wouldn't we take this? This could only help us. 
This can only benefit us in the future to have these resources. So he takes some of it, puts it in a bag, sneaks it back into the Israelites' camp, lifts up his tent, digs a hole underneath his tent, buries his stuff in, puts his tent back down on top. He's like, okay, I've got it here. I've got it here. It's gonna be okay. And nobody knew except for Achan and probably his family that were staying in the tent. So Joshua thinks, hey, we've destroyed Jericho. We've done what God asked us to do. Everything's going great. Let's move on to I. And then this is where we pick up the story. Here's the biblical account, Joshua chapter seven, verse two. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to I, which is near Beth Avon, to the east of Bethel. The end of that sentence means nothing to us <laughs> near Beth Avon on the end of Bethel. But this is history. Right? Those who read this at the time, they knew exactly what they were talking about. Oh yeah, Beth Avon. Just east of Bethel. Off 95 near I-16, up a puller. You know, that kind of that's that kind of direction into the narrative that they're writing. He, so he sends them in and he told them, go up, spy out the region. So the men went up, spied out. I, when they returned Joshua to Joshua, they said, not all of the army will have to go up against I. Send two or 3,000 men to take it and do not weary all of the army for only a few men are there. In other words, Joshua, this is gonna be a cakewalk. It's gonna be easy. We're gonna show up. They probably will have heard what, we, what happened in Jericho and they're probably going to run. So don't even bother sending the whole army. Verse four, so about 3,000 men went up, but they were routed by the men of Ai. So Joshua sends up the small group like the scouting people told him. And in short order, they are routed by this small city and they came back with no victory. And this was shocking to the people of the nation of Israel. They were routed by Ai who killed about 36 of them immediately. And then they chased the Israelites from the city gate as far as the stone quarry. Again, those, read, those who read, were reading this were like, oh yeah, we know where the quarry is in relation to I. Like he's giving actual places here. And they struck them down on the slopes. At this, the hearts of the people, the Israelite people, melted in fear and became like water. So, this, so the soldier comes running back in fear, tells Joshua they got dominated. They thought it would be easy, especially after Jericho. Just like, and just like when things don't go our way, they began to think and ask the question, where is God? When things don't go as easy as we thought they would go and the turnout is bad, our response is, whoa, 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 whoa where's God? I thought God cared about this. So here's what Joshua does, verse six. Joshua tore his clothes and fell face down to the ground before the ark of the Lord, which they're referring to the ark of the covenant, which was the center point of the worship of the people of Israel. And he remained there till evening. And the elders, which were the leaders of Israel, did the same and they sprinkled dust on their heads. Implication of this being, God, what happened? Where were you? Why, 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 God, would you, in your power and your infinite wisdom, allow this to happen? God, if we're honest about this whole thing, uh, this is kind of your fault. Didn't in Jericho, you uh, made, the, made the point very loud and clear for us that we're not to depend on our, our army. You're going to bring us through these things. What happened, God? What happened? We were in Egypt. Now we're here. We thought we were following you. Jericho was a cakewalk. Now this. And Joshua said, alas, sovereign Lord, why did you 
And this is what we do so many times, isn't it? <laughs> Shift that blame onto somebody that we think will take it. It's believable that maybe they're the ones to blame for something that maybe we weren't quite responsible at. It says, why? Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? If only we had been content to stay on the other side of the Jordan, which is where they had destroyed Jericho. In other words, God, look at what has happened. This is your fault. And then, this is great. Look how he segues here. Verse eight, pardon your servant, Lord. In other words, this is about to turn into an R-rated prayer here, Lord. Because <laughs> I'm going to say some things. I might raise my voice here a little bit. What can I say now that Israel has been routed by its enemies? The Canaanites and the other people of the country will hear about this. You know, you know how we like to, sometimes when we're praying, we like to tell God things. We like to inform God of things as, as, as if he had never thought about the contingency that we're bringing up, right? This is what Joshua was doing. He says, they'll hear about this and they will surround us and wipe out our name from the earth. There will be no more Israel. What then will you, God, again, placing the onus of the blame, what will you do for your own great name? This was his way of saying, hey, God, just in case you haven't caught on to what's happened here, uh, this isn't just an embarrassment for us. This defeat is an embarrassment for you. Aren't you embarrassed that we, your people, who represent you to the surrounding nations, who when asked, what gods do you worship? We chuckle and say, not gods, God, the one true God. Aren't you embarrassed at what has happened to us? So the Lord says to Joshua, verse 10, stand up. What are you doing on your face? Joshua, why are you praying? This is not the time for prayer. <laughs> well, I thought, I thought, I thought it was always time to pray. Aren't we always supposed to be praying? Isn't it always the right time for prayer, no matter what's going on? Short answer, no. No, it's not. Joshua, why are you on your face? And I think if Joshua were to answer that question honestly, he would probably give a two-part answer. He'd probably say, well, if I'm pretty honest, I'm A, avoiding having to address the Israelite people to talk about this defeat and what's next for us. And B, I'm uh, sitting here blaming it all on you. That would probably be his honest answer, right? But here's what he says. God says, stand up. Israel. Now follow this because this is such a huge idea. I don't even know if I'm going to be able to portray it properly. Israel has sinned. Now time out. <laughs> hold on, God, hold on one second. Uh, we know the rest of the story, right? We've read it. We know what's going on. It wasn't Israel who sinned. It was this guy, it wasn't the nation of Israel. God, God, it was Achan, a singular individual 
without even the rest of Israel knowing he had done it. God says, I'm not done. I'm not done. Israel has sinned. They, looping them all, bunching them all together again, they have violated my covenant, which I commanded them to keep. They have taken some of the devoted things. And the reason that phraseology right there, devoted things was used, is because they were to view all of those things that they were destroying in that city as a burnt offering devoted to God. God said, just leave it. I know you could enrich yourself with it, but it, it, it is an, leave it as an expression of your devotion to me. But God tells them, they have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen, they have lied, they have put them with their own possessions. This is why the Israelites, don't blame me here, Joshua. This is why the Israelites cannot stand against their enemies. They turn their backs and they run because they have been made liable to destruction. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever among you is devoted to destruction. Go. In other words, Joshua, you're wasting your time on your knees praying to me right now. Get up, go and do something. Go, he says, consecrate the people. Tell them, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. There are devoted things amongst you, Israel. You cannot stand against your enemies until you remove them. And I look at that whole response from God and, and I, I, I'm torn in how to react to it between, wow, that's incredible. That's such a deep principle that's happening here. And oh my goodness, how unfair of it is it to all of the nation of Israel, to the nearly 2,000 men who lost their lives against Achan because of this one guy's irresponsibility in disobeying what God had told them to do in Jericho? I'm torn. But we get a glimpse. Here's what's so big about this story is we get a glimpse of what happens in a community that is in a family, in a company, uh, in a city, in a nation, we get a glimpse of what happens when someone acts irresponsible. It's not just them that pays the price. It's everyone in community around them, connected with them, that bears the consequences of that irresponsibility. Everybody knew what they were supposed to do. One guy doesn't do it, the whole nation goes down. Now, viewing this from the human perspective, um, you would expect God to just go after this guy and his family, right? I mean, he, he's, God's got prophets. God could talk to Joshua, obviously. Why wouldn't he just be like, hey, you've got somebody amongst you not doing what they should do. Why don't you take care of that so things don't get ugly down the road? Like, if I was Joshua, I would have appreciated the heads up from God that things were gonna go sideways because of him. Right? Why would the whole nation suffer for this one guy's irresponsibility? And the answer is, is because this is the nature of a community, of a connection of people, of a family, of relationship. When one person is irresponsible, everybody that they are connected with will eventually sow or reap what was sown in that irresponsibility. 
And from our perspective, it's not fair, but we've got to understand a hard truth. Just because something isn't fair doesn't mean it's not true. And that's where we get so sideways sometimes when we're trying to interpret some of these things and how they work in our life. We get hung up on the fair, but something being unfair doesn't mean it's not true. And you've got to understand the principle of how irresponsibility affects every single person you are connected to. It isn't fair that maybe in your marriage, you've been the, the best spouse that you could possibly be, but your, uh, your spouse has been irresponsible, maybe with their time or their money or their morality or their friends or their mouth or their alcohol or their prescriptions or something. And you've done all you could do but yet you have felt the impact of their irresponsibility, right? What, what, what you sow, I reap if I'm connected to you. It is a principle that is deeply as unfair as it seems. We cannot just choose to avoid it. We can't. And I could, I could sit here and I could give you hours upon hours of examples of people who reaped the irresponsibility of other people connected to them. And this is why, and this is difficult, this is so difficult, and I understand it's easy for me to sit here and say it, but this is why we must become, and I'm gonna use a really bad word in our culture, we must become intolerant of people around us and ourselves behaving irresponsibly. Why? Because it impacts all of us. All of us. It doesn't work to just say, it's none of my business. Right? It doesn't work. We, we must say, it is going to become my business because it is going to affect me. And so I have got to address it. I can't just tolerate it and let it go on. So before that happens... Before I sow the consequences of what you're reaping, we have got to address and confront your irresponsibility now. Now, we all have different personalities, right? Uh, some of you, I mean, just the idea of a confrontation gets your motor running. <laughs> you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Just point me in the right direction. Who am I confronting? Some of you, that's your nature. Some of you would do anything in your power to avoid a confrontation. <laughs> Most of us are somewhere in the middle. But listen, here's the point of this story. You cannot be tolerant of irresponsibility because in the context of those who you are connected to being irresponsible, if you allow it, there is no win to be had. There is no win to be had. Everybody connected to the irresponsible person is going to pay. Well, well, no, no, I'm a, I'm a Christian, so I'm just gonna be tolerant and just forgive and that'll be it, um, you know. And I would say, well, no, if you're a Christian, that's probably why you should confront them first, right? But what about the love of Jesus and just letting it go? Read the gospels. See how Jesus confronted people in the midst of their irresponsibility. Listen, as uncomfortable as this is for some of us because of our personalities, um, 
as uncomfortable as it is because it has been so misused by the church throughout history, confrontation is a part of spirituality. If you're doing it right and you're in community with people who are pursuing a spiritual life, confrontation is going to be a part of that. The best thing that you can do for an irresponsible person for the sake of everybody is to refuse to put up with it. But we have a tendency to excuse, ignore, and tolerate irresponsibility around us. But there is no win. So Joshua does exactly what God says. I don't even know if he said amen. I imagine he might just heard that and was like, if that's what I got to do, I'm getting up and doing it, right? So he sends out him and the, him and the soldier. They get out. They're like, hey, we've heard something about you. <laughs> He's all like, what, me? What, what have you heard? <laughs> I don't know what you could possibly be talking about, right? So they search the camp. They find the stuff Achan had hidden underneath his tent. They actually go and return it to destroyed Jericho. And then they punish Achan as an example. And once that's done, they attack I again and they move on. Now, here's the question for us today, for you and for me. Here, here's the question. First, for maybe, maybe, maybe if you're one of the religious people, um, are you hiding behind prayer? Are you one of the people that you just do the things that you do, and then when things don't go right and consequences are falling in and people are pointing out, you know, the things you've done wrong, the problems you have, you're like, oh, yeah, 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 I'm praying about it. And you'll pray before God, hey, God, we need to pray about this. What's going on? You need to fix it. You hide. You hide behind prayer. Are you praying when you are supposed to be standing up and doing something? Here's how you know the answer to that question. If you should be doing something instead of praying. Andy, are you really telling us there's times you don't want us to pray? Absolutely, I'm telling you that. I'm telling you, here's how you know if you should be praying about a specific situation or not going on. If God has already addressed it in the scriptures, you don't need to pray about it. The answer's there. God has spoken. He's not gonna tell you different. As obvious as that seems, as obvious as that seems, you would not believe how many people have told me about things that they're praying about in their life as to whether they should or should not do it or get involved with it. And I don't know if they're just trying to impress me with the idea of, hey, you're the pastor, so I'm gonna tell you I'm praying about this really bad decision I'm getting ready to make. Right? And I'm looking at I'm like, listen, you don't need to pray about whether or not you should be honest in this situation. God's spoken. You should be honest. I've literally had to tell people, you don't need to pray about whether or not you should pay your taxes. Give unto Caesars. What is it? Jesus spoke. <laughs> like, this doesn't need a prayer. I'm not lying to you. I've had to tell people, you don't need to pray about whether or not you should be faithful and stay with your spouse. This is not a prayer to be had. 
Not a time to be praying. There are tons of things that you should be praying about. Tons of them. But if God has spoken on it already, do not hide behind prayer to hide and mask your irresponsibility. I'm getting a little hard today. Listen, if you're trying to pray your way out of something that you have behaved your way into, it's time to stop praying and get up and do something. You cannot pray your way out of something that you behaved your way into. I mean, sure, go ahead and pray, but do something. Do something. But if you are substituting prayer, if you are substituting that for taking responsibility for your action and doing what is necessary to make restitution for your action, that just means you are an irresponsible person who prays. That's all that means. And everyone around you and you yourself will continue to reap what comes from that irresponsibility. And the truth is, is that prayer is such a religious activity that when we do it, there's something inside of us that makes us feel like we're closer to God just because we took some time to pray. But it doesn't mean that we're actually closer to God, and it certainly doesn't mean that we're more responsible. And if you're trying to pray your way out of something you behaved your way into, perhaps it's time to stand up and do something. And this can happen in any aspect of life. If you've, if you've abused credit cards and not saved anything and spent irresponsible, irresponsibly and you're living a lifestyle that you can't afford, sure, go ahead and pray about your finances if you want. But I have a feeling God's not really gonna intervene on that until you stand up and you do something about your financial behavior. It's just the way it's gonna work. You can pray about being in a healthy relationship but until you stop pursuing unhealthy ones and go where you can meet healthy people, God's not going to really do much in your unhealthy relationships that you just keep stringing together. And this is on every level. Professor, I'm sure you would tell your students, hey, you can pray for good grades, but why don't you study? That would go just as far, if not further, than you're praying, Right? And it just keeps going on and on and on. You, you, you want a good job? Yeah, pray, yes. But also do what's necessary and go looking and search and put yourself in the positions to find the good job. Are you being responsible in your life or are you just hiding behind prayer? Whew, I need a drink. So let me ask you a few questions just to... Go ahead and top it off and make you mad as you leave here this Sunday morning. <laughs> Aren't you all glad you got up and came today? While I've been talking, has anything popped into your mind? Has anything, has anything popped Are there prayers that you pray that secretly, if someone heard you praying those prayers, they would say, yeah, I hear you praying that, but I don't really see you doing much about it. Are, are, are there anything of those? Yeah, you, you, I mean, you keep praying about your relationship with your kids, but I don't see you really spending much time with them or investing into them, right? Are, are you hiding behind your prayers? Are, are there people connected to you 
that maybe are acting irresponsible and you, you're afraid to confront them? Right? Do you make excuses for them? Because that's a lose-lose situation. The most loving thing we could do for everybody involved in this situation is to confront them and talk about their irresponsible behavior. So, so what are we to do with that? Here, here's, here's what it is. We should ask ourselves the question, am I taking responsibility for my life? I mean, really. Am I really taking responsibility for my life? Because perhaps... Some of this this morning, maybe we're in a situation where there is some reaping going on and there are some things not going about it and we're praying about it instead of taking responsibility. And God may be saying to some of us today, now is not the time to pray. Now's the time to stand up and to do something. Take responsibility. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, um, this is, a, this is a, a little bit of a heavy hammer this morning. But God, I pray as we go throughout this week that, that we are able to reflect upon our actions with a sense of openness for you to point out in our lives where we are either acting irresponsible and perhaps covering it up through looking kind of spiritual, where perhaps we're bringing things to you and praying about things that really we need to be just taking action on. Or maybe we're in a situation where we have tolerated and made excuses for someone who is connected to us, their irresponsible behavior. And now we're reaping the consequences. Lord, I pray this week you begin to let us see these things in a different way. Lord, let us see with clarity what we need to do, the action that we need to take so that we begin to take responsibility both for our actions and to curb the responsibility of those connected to us. Lord, I thank you that even though these are some difficult truths, that we have these principles preserved in these scriptures for us. Lord, let us learn from them. Let us benefit from them so that we can live the lives that you have in mind for us, not one that is burdened by reaping the consequences of an irresponsible life. Lord, I thank you for your love and your commitment to us. In your name, amen. amen. Thank you so much for coming out. I really hope you still like me. Um, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week as we continue on in our Sunday School series.